This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. G-A-L-D-E-M G-A-L-D-E-M This song is good. Welcome to another season of Growing Up with Galden. Inspired by our book, I Will Not Be Erased, our stories about growing up as people of colour. My name is Charlie. I'm the editor-in-chief at Galden. We're an award-winning company committed to platforming the voices, perspectives and the creative work of women and non-binary people of colour. I'm Natty Kasambala. I'm a writer and former editor and longtime contributor at Gaudem. Each week, we invite guests to respond to old diary entries, letters, or text messages from their younger selves. The point is to nurture important discussions about growing up. You can find Growing Up with Gaudem on Apple Podcasts, the Acast app, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Stacey Anchin unapologetically identifies as Caribbean and Black, Asian and Lesbian a feminist and a pro-choice mother. A proud Jamaican national, Stacey Ann was featured on the Oprah Winfrey Show, where she spoke candidly about growing up on the island and the consequences of coming out as a lesbian there. Known as a co-writer and performer in the Tony Award-winning Death Poetry Jam on Broadway, her career as a performer began at the New Eurekan Poets Cafe. Her poems have morphed into one-woman shows off-Broadway and inspired writing workshops and performances around the world. Stacey Ann's theatrical life continues to evolve within the context of being a woman activist who writes. Her most recent one-woman show, Motherload, chronicles her fiercely determined journey towards motherhood. Hi, so thank you so much for joining us today. We are really excited to have you with us to talk about all of your many incredible pieces of work and also hear an extract from your most recent book, I believe, which is called Crossfire. 
To kick off, I wanted to talk a little bit about the concept of community. I think so much of grassroots work and language has sort of been commodified for profit in this day and age. And I think possibly including that idea of being in community. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you meant when you said, I make community, which is a, a quote we sort of found of yours, which I thought was really interesting. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure being here. And, you know, across time zones, it's always interesting and wonderful and magical to see that it actually happens. I grew up in Jamaica where community is a pretty strong word. And I'm actually talking to you from Jamaica just now. And uh, I, I grew up with many people, their lives interlaced into one another and we were required to be with each other in order to survive. So on very small things like my mother left when I was a child and didn't come back for me. And so, you know, neighbors helped each other. We lived in a lot of spaces. I was consistently in and out of different homes. So the community of the family had to kind of come together to figure out what to do with me. And even though no one really wanted to have me or no one had the resources to take care of an extra mouth, there was a sense that you couldn't not do it. And so I ended up in many places that, with people who were sort of either forced to do it or were themselves struggling to do it. So I grew up knowing that people outside of where I lived and the people inside of where I lived had a lot of power over how much my life went left or right, good or bad, up or down. There was a, a kind of communal interdependency. People shared resources of food. They shared resources of, of work, resources of you know, fixing the house, cleaning the yard, picking coffee, killing a cow. You know, I, I grew up in the first nine years of my life very much entrenched in that philosophy. Having come out as a gay person, as a lesbian, in my you know, late teens, early 20s, that I kind of forfeited my belonging to that community in all of the ways that I had grown up and belonged to a Jamaican community, the community inside of Uimona, my university here, the community of friendships I had you know, nurtured and developed over the years. My being queer, my being gay made me a kind of you know, square peg that didn't fit anymore into this round hole of the community in which I lived. And so I think running off to America and trying to make a life there was the first time that I had really been forced into the contemplation of what making community is because when you grow up in tight-knit communities, community is always there, whether it's good or bad, whether it's supportive or not, it's there. And so when you move to a big city, when you move to a place like New York, you have to make community as in you have to find people who are your kin, who are your tribe, people who will show up for you and make space for you and take care of you and listen to your stories and help you to buy food if you don't have it or lend you a coat when you don't have it. So I think there was a definite shift between just kind of widening one's community and what I knew to be the norm in Jamaica, so you make more friends at university and you get in with the people who you want to be close to and you try to become close friends. But yeah, I think the big city life certainly makes it necessary to make community. You have to come up with it. You have to divine it. You have to devise it. You have to create it. You have to bend it in the direction that makes sense for you. You have to travel long distances for it. 
you have to use resources, you know, to make it happen. And, and as a lesbian in New York, certainly as a, a minority, as a, a black immigrant, lesbian, you know, poet, radical, feminist thinker, I had to seek that community and figure out how to multiply all the parts of me so that I could see myself reflected in the faces around the dinner tables that I ate on the dance floors in which I, you know, shook my booty. You know, I had to find a way to create communities that had Jamaican bits in it, had black lesbianism in it, had queer folk in it, had activist folks in it, had people who didn't necessarily have a lot of resources in it, people who were seeking apartments to live in. I had to make it. And in many places, we had to make it from nothing. And we had to figure out how to make this thing frequent. We had to devise a kind of routine and frequency of being that would um, engender, nurture, uh, create scenarios in which we would see each other often. So we would have writing groups and we would have, I don't know, lesbian confessional Tuesdays or (laughs) whatever it was that would pull you into a group that you could see yourself. That's gorgeous. So a previous guest we had on the podcast, uh, like probably a couple of years ago now, was Nicole Dennis-Ben. And she spoke at that time about how she kind of, despite the odds, has managed to find a, a queer community in Jamaica since leaving to New York. And now when she comes back, she feels like she has a space to go and to be in that feels safe and welcoming. And I wonder, obviously, you're back in Jamaica at the moment. Have you managed to make a community there yet? Or is that sort of still in the works? Oh, I've always had a community here. I mean, yesterday I actually wrote, I actually blogged, I think on my IG page where I spoke about, you know, things I would have done differently. And I think some of the first voices that pushed back at me violently and homophobically when I came out as a lesbian in 19, you know, 95 in Jamaica, those experiences, you know, having been um, sexually assaulted on campus by a dozen boys, having been shunned by many people who were perhaps struggling with their own sexuality or struggling with keeping their own, you know, sexual orientation out of the public eye. And I came out rather loudly and, you know, unapologetically and in many ways, shockingly to some people. I think the negative responses I got made me decide that I was going to cut off everyone unilaterally. And so maybe because of the fear of them rejecting me, I rejected them first. And so I kind of picked up and left and said, okay, I'm not dealing with Jamaica at all. I'm not dealing with Jamaicans at all. I pulled away from many of my friends. And when I came out, like on TV in America, those people reached out to me and said, it's never been a problem. I don't know what you're talking about. You know, all of a sudden it became this very interesting place where I had made assumptions about some people who, that were not true. And I mean, I understand why I did it. I definitely did it in order to be safe myself, to take care of myself, to be good, to prevent what I thought was, you know, a world of hurt coming towards me. And so I understand it, but I think there were always people who would have loved me regardless, in spite of and because of my sexuality here in Jamaica. And over the years, I've certainly, like, a, I think a, a few lovers ago, I had a Jamaican lover. And that relationship had me come back to Jamaica quite often, like every month or so. 
And that certainly rebuilt my relationship with Jamaica, solidified many of my friendships. And this time I'm here for three months so far. This time that I'm in Jamaica, I am fleeing from how COVID has manifested itself in what New York is. New York is a community of many people in small spaces and uh, the winter coupled with those factors pushed me. I mean, and I also bought a house last year, so I'm, I was renovating and doing a whole bunch of hard work. And so between the winter, the season of lockdown, unable to go anywhere because of the cold and the lockdown and the renovation that was happening in my home, I fled New York for the comfort and the joys of my adult Jamaican friends' homes that are maybe at this point spacious and comfortable and have a lot of space outside for the kid to run in and out and sunlight and warmth. And so I came here for that. I was to come for two weeks and I've been here three and a half months. So I'm not quite sure what's going to happen because I know she's been here and she's blooming and watching her have this specific moment of her girlhood here is rekindling all of my, all the joys that had been disappointed in my own girlhood and my own growing up here. So watching her be playful and safe and uh, wide open. And uh, we both learned to swim here. As a child, I never had the resources or the opportunity or the time to become a swimmer. I never had access to the water. But coming back here, we're staying with a friend who has a pool in her, you know, gated community. And uh, we have another friend who is a swim instructor. And uh, the two have come together marvelously. And I have now become a swimmer. And my daughter is a swimmer. So this specific way of being in Jamaica has allowed us to take ownership of the land, the water here in a way that I had never been able to. And to watch my daughter be nine years old and be, you know, I can very safely propel myself from one end of the pool to the next. I don't pretend that it's graceful, but my daughter has become a fish. You know, she can jump in. And so just all of these things to, to experience a Jamaican girlhood in the eyes and experience of my daughter has certainly shifted what I remember some of the central brutalities of growing up here. I think that's a really interesting concept to be reliving that and to be mending those relationships through your child. That's really beautiful. I can certainly relate as well because I came to Malawi where I was born for Christmas and I have ended up staying in South Africa for three months. So <laughs> I also wow. <laughs> have been improving my Say swimming that again. skills. So you, you are in South Africa now. Yeah. So I came so to So now we have to be friends because I collect humans from South Africa because it's <laughs> one of my absolute favorite places in the world. Oh, and man. I have all kinds of soul sisters and heart friends that I ache for in South Africa, oh. in Johannesburg and Cape Town. It's, so you, it's such a beautiful country. 
I can be your Durban contact because that's where my parents' base is. But yeah, you're so right. It's, and I think in a lot of ways, like a lot of people coming back to Africa, like myself and my family, we've, we've lived in the UK for 25 years and now we're getting to enjoy the continent again in like a really positive light that we didn't necessarily get to the first time around. So I can absolutely relate. And you put it in just such a poetic way. I wanted to ask you a little bit about your work and your love of like black literature as well because something I noticed in your pieces is how you kind of you talk a lot about the I guess the way that black voices versus white voices are received in the in the greater communities and like you know the privileges that come with certain people shouting over others um and I guess I it's something that you see in the canon and it's something that you see in terms of like who's considered classic and I wondered, like, what was your education through black literature like? Was it something that you did on your own? Was it something that you, you know, was passed down to you? And how did you come across it? I think reading saved my life as a child. You know, um, my mother left when I was born. I didn't have a father that stepped into place. My grandmother was deaf up until I was nine, unable to read for much of my life, my grandmother. And so... There was a way that, like, for all intents and purposes, I shouldn't have come to literature. Literature shouldn't have found me. Uh, I was poor. We had no money for books. I don't remember getting any books before I was, I don't know, 9 or 10 or 11. And the ones that I got at 9 or 10 or 11 were books that were discarded by other people or books found um, in homes that I lived in that other cousins who had used them for school and left them for dead and I found them. I remember reading books that the back pages were gone and I didn't quite get to read them until I was an adult when I was able to procure a copy for myself. I remember reading books where the front of it was missing and so the first two or three chapters were gone and then I would just kind of tumble into the story um, reading those stories. I remember reading Toni Morrison's Tar Baby and not really making any sense of it when I was about eight or so. But Loving how I felt while I was reading it. I remember reading Shakespeare, you know, shouting it from the top of a mango tree, you know, um, on Sex Me Here, you know, um, you know, maybe because I, I was, I was, you know, eight and loved to say the word sex or on sex. I, I don't know what it was, but I read everything. I read The Merchant of Venice before I knew what Jews were with no kind of guide to sort me through it. My first, maybe, instance with like formal literature I was probably in the seventh grade you know we read stuff in school but there were like short snippets of like you know Jamaican stories or maybe a few stories that came out of like the British colonial experience but I remember being in the seventh grade and going to a class called literature class and uh, English class and both those classes were like my absolute favorite because they dwelled in stories you know, not that they were English, but that they dwelt in the telling of tales. Like they constructed the notion of how you tell a story, why you tell a story, who is in that story, why is that person in that story, and what are they really intending to do with the story? And I loved it. And I remember having the most awful teacher, you know, in terms of like how dictatorial she was and how much of an authoritarian voice she was and how she loathed any error in the use of English, you know, in a, in, a, in a classroom that lots of people didn't speak English as a first language. However, the fact that it was English and because she was so passionate about the stories, 
I loved going to that woman's class, even when she threatened to descend on us from a great height. And when she said we were an embarrassment to the, you know, to the beauty of the English language. I mean, just, you know, she would tell us the most awful things, but I loved that class because we would be reading To Kill a Mockingbird and we would be reading, um, you know, all kinds of stories that meant that I would meet a little girl, that I would, you know, uh, and, and, and I lived for literature classes and I read as I grew older and I had friends who didn't necessarily belong to my class or my school, I began to borrow their books and read all their books and, you know, collect. I remember reading at nine, I read Linda Lovelace's The Ordeal. She was like the porn star who was like writing about her, her, her experience of being captured and like used as a sex slave and completely inappropriate for a child of nine. But it was another story that like, you know, I could see myself in this woman that seemed to be trapped in this like experience and she wanted to get out of it. And I mean, the sexual themes were of course titillating for a kid, but at the same time, they spoke of a life where a woman was consistently, you know, at the mercy of men and their choices and their desires and her body was never hers. And it, I felt like that too as a child, living in a place where molestation was par for the course and sexual assault was part of what I navigated daily in terms of like people grabbing at my body and, you know, pinching what felt to me like were like really small, pinching my just coming out boobs. So those were hard things, but wrapped up in all of that was the ladder that literature became for me. And I knew if I kept climbing it, I would one day get beyond whatever this reality is. This chapter would evolve and change and the story would move to the next chapter if I only could be keep turning the page. So I loved it. Wow. <laughs> That's like the, the headline quote. Yeah. That's super interesting. And then at what stage did you, I guess, move beyond the prescribed reading in terms of like the colonial... <laughs> the colonial syllabus. <laughs> I, read, I, I read everything I could get my hands on up until I was in ninth grade. Like, and, and that meant I would read my friends' books. I would read books that I found in friends' homes. And then in other homes, there were parents who were readers. And in other homes, children were given books in many chapters and many volumes to read. And so I began to read like the one of my first and early, I mean, I say with the utmost shame that I was an avid reader of Mills and Boole and Harley Quinn novels where, you know, you know, my mom's obsessed. My mom was also obsessed. <laughs> oh my God. And the man was continuously no. plunging his male hardness into her quivering softness. And she was always, you know, boy meets girl. There was electricity. They didn't like each other. She had auburn hair or she had blonde hair. But decisively, this thing was ongoing all the time, all of these stories about love and loss and violation and truth. And I hit the ninth grade, and at 10th grade in Jamaica, you decide what you want to specialize in. You choose your specialization at 10th grade. And I did quite well in literature, but I also did quite well across the board. I did well in, with the sciences as well. And I was going to a girls' school, and so few of the girls, you know, Science is not a language that is handed over easily to girls. And so few of us do well in the sciences. And so few were doing well with the sciences that the English class was 
oversubscribed and the science class was too small. And so the um, powers that be had to make a call and they said, Stacey Ann, you do so well at both that we can't allow you to go towards literature. You're going to have to go towards the sciences. And so I was kind of, I enjoyed the sciences, but I was passionate about literature. And so I went and did the sciences for two years until the 11th grade when we graduated high school. And then I went to teacher's college where I had to study what it was that I, that I came in qualified to study. So I had to study the sciences and I did four years of the sciences there. And then by the end of that journey, I said, fuck this. I'm absolutely not going to do this shit anymore. I don't want to do it. I want to do literature. And so I applied to the university and did a degree in philosophy and literature. But when I... <laughs> I did philosophy. Sorry, that, that's very exciting. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. And, you know, I remember like, you know, you said philosophy, so you'll probably get this one more readily than most people where I remember the exact moment I knew I was, you know, a gay because the most beautiful girl in the world, the most beautiful girl in the class was chewing on her pencil and making some point about Descartes and desire. And I'm watching her mouth wrap around the pencil and talking about Descartes and desire. And my response to her absolutely confirmed to me that I was a gay, 100% fully and queerly and squarely mapped out as a gay. But I, I was still borrowing everybody. Even when I was in uh, teacher's college, I was <laughs> most of my friends, most of my close friends were in literature. And so I was reading all of their work and like, you know, discussing all of this stuff with them. And, you know, by the time you got into literature and philosophy, it was all about just reading, reading, reading these books and stories about literature and philosophy. And I think there is where the opening came for me to question how things were. Like, is religion, you know, constructed? Is God a constructed phenomenon? Is sexuality constructed? Oh my God, if that is so, then this thing that I'm feeling might be quite natural as opposed to this deviance that I've been struggling with for years. That's brilliant. Okay, well, thank you for telling us so much in-depth, beautiful like tidbits about your life today. Uh, we've really appreciated it. We're now going to move on to the extract. So we're going to have our own secret little Stacey Ann performance, which I'm very excited about. <laughs> so, yeah. It's called Common Truths or Why I Love My Pussy, which is a bloody great name. Can't wait for you to read it. Women have always been the center of things beautiful for me. Becoming woman has always been the center of my girlhood. The sum of my thighs, ankles, even my shoulders were always girl. And when I bled for the first time, I told my best friend, wrapped my secret in her ear, assured her that this blood meant that we could make babies. But being a girl in Jamaica in 1980 meant I had to run faster than my cousin's fingers, farther than his sweaty palms reaching for my hands. My tiny breasts had to be brave against his fury when I refused. One night, I stabbed him. Pencil point sliding swift into his flesh. The whole house cried out, and I was so proud of my yellow pencil, point sharp and without fear. My aunt beat me anyways. For making your cousin bleed, she said. 
and I cried more out of loneliness than anything. The other cousin's name remains quiet upon my tongue. I think of him when I'm sad or angry or afraid of things that do not make noises in the dark. Stark raving mad, he showed me his dick, told me, you smell like a woman in that little girl's body. Hips barely budding, he cornered me in the hallway, in the bathroom. When I bled, I washed, quick and quiet. Years later, he still smiles at me. Even now, no apologies necessary. I was only a girl. Quick and quiet, girls learn to wash the details away, bury them under briefs, jeans, cargo pants. Under these panties rest the story of these chochas, these twats, these bushes that bleed. On time, once a month, I'm reminded that though I have not yet given birth, I can. My pussy can do something no dick or tomcat can. I dare you to make people without a vagina. Shiva or man or beast. Even Jesus had to pass through a punani. Angels and messengers aside, Mary had to lend passage to God. Or them Christians might still be Jews waiting for a Christ that was stuck up the ass of some man who thought he could do what little girls are forced to do in Sri Lanka, Uganda, in South Carolina. Every day against our wishes, we carry common stories of sons and fathers and cousins who violate the sanctity of these bodies, these breasts, this ability to make breath from passion or the neat decision of an intent. One day, I hope my belly will bloom little miracles called Andrea or Elisha or Alexander. Male mouths will open wide in wonder and terror. Every day, men ponder the magic of what vaginas do. Every day, women carry people into being. And every day, even on the most petrifying day, I stand grateful I was born, bloody snatch, in just the right place. Today, I am so glad I was born a girl, especially since yesterday, my mother told me, go ahead and write your story. No matter that I will write her in unflattering truths, write she told me, and I hope the book sells so you can afford to raise a daughter with a heart like yours. And everything was better between us. It didn't matter that she left me twice. No matter that in Jamaica, in 1972, in 1980, my mother chose her safety over mine. Yesterday, she said, write, my daughter. And the world righted itself. I wish every mother whose daughter survived the burial of unspoken things would give her permission to say what happened, to write down how she endured the terror of being that small girl in a world that so deeply favors large, cruel men. I wish every cunt had the courage to bear public witness. I wish every woman had a pen, a clear view, and the support she needs to scream, what happened to me was not my fault. What happened to me was not my fault. What happened to me was not my fault. Incredible. Thank you so much for that. It fully resonates. It also made me think back to, I keep referencing previous interviews we've done today, but it's because it's, it's, it's relevant, I guess. But we, we did a really brilliant interview with a writer called Chanel Miller, who you might have come across. She published a book called Know My Name. And that was one of the things that, that we spoke about quite a lot was this idea of fault and who blame gets assigned to. And I love that you ended it on that note, that really strong note in capitals as well on the page. So, yeah, beautiful. When was this written? And 
was you know what you say about your mum almost granting you permission is that is that what happened in reality I wrote this I think perhaps when I was in my late 20s maybe early 30s at the latest because I wasn't pregnant yet I didn't have a kid yet because it says one day I hope even though I have not yet given birth I can and I hope one day my belly will bloom little miracles or something so I, I knew I was looking forward to a time when I could, when I could speak, when I would do all the things that I have done now. It's quite astounding, you know. So speaking of which, I was, you know, I was looking forward to a time. I was hoping, and I don't know. It's maybe it's an interesting. I've never been on a program for which the poem I'm reading is so aptly written, because it's about growing up somewhere, about looking ahead, about moving. You know, the context of growing up as a girl here and even the name of the show has a kind of like Jamaican undertone to it that's kind of fucking dope man that's amazing like you know I actually listened to a, a group of women called Rebel Lit yesterday they had a an online chat with Jerain and like uh, I can't remember exactly who was on but you know I just you know pop into these chats sometimes just to show some support for the young people who are doing amazing things and I was on there for like an, an hour and a half, you know, two hours with them listening and asking a million questions of them. It was probably one of the most well-spent evenings with the, the young Jamaican women of Rebel Lit. I was just going to ask that I think going off of what you just said in terms of like, like the line when you said you hope that your belly blooms miracles, literally I made like an audible sound in my room here because I just thought it was so beautiful. Um, and I guess I wanted to ask, like, along those lines, on the theme of motherhood and this thing that you predicted that came true, um, especially given your own relationship with your own mother, how was it and how has it been in, since you wrote this piece in kind of, like, stepping into your motherhood and owning that space as well and learning, I guess, on the job? I begin every conversation about motherhood. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. By affirming that this is only one story of motherhood. I think sometimes when we get into these beautiful interpretations of who we are and these wonderful truths about people's experience, I think we run into the, the trap. We run the risk of we run the risk of making it seem as if this is like the way for most humans who can give birth to go. I want to begin by saying, if you've got a uterus, you ain't got to use it for shit, but to hold up your abdominal muscles. That is your right. It is your due. It is what we as feminists for millennia have fought for. The right for you to decide whatever you do with your own body. And so I was prepared, I think, going into the motherhood process for it to be so challenging. I expected all my own childhood sorrows to be unearthed. I expected everything to turn itself over. I expected it to be hard work. I expected my daughter and I to have more bones of contention than we had areas of commonality. I expected her life to be so completely different from mine. I expected her to be, you know, entitled and, uh, you know, unforgiving and and misunderstanding my own childhood. But whatever card I drew when I want, went into that baby pool, you know, you, you're playing blackjack, you're playing baby blackjack, whatever card they dealt me was like, I locked the fuck out. I got the best kid, most suited to my temperament, most suited to challenging me in the areas I needed to grow, most suited towards dispensing kindness most suited towards articulating all her feelings in every way. When she was four years old, she says, Mama, I know you have all the power, but you don't have to use all the power all the time. So there are ways in which she has been remarkably good for me. Now, I don't know if I have been as good for her in the same way because, you know, my edges are hard and I am... I can be inflexible and I can be exacting and I can demand too much from her. The standards I have for her are way higher than any standard she will meet out in the world. But she is adaptable and she forgets arguments and slights very quickly and easily. She forgives easily. She is very prone to saying, okay, well... 
we don't have to do that. If you want to do that, I can do that too. Soft, kind, and she's that way with everyone. If I worry about anything for her, I worry that she will lay herself out too generously to people who do not deserve it and to people who might take advantage of her. But so far, it's worked for her. Like the generosity she hands out is more often than not given back to her. But also, she is, I think she will have many hurts in her life because she is so, she gives of herself so extensively. But I also think that her capacity to heal from hurt will also serve her in that. I can carry a grudge for a long time. You know, every new hurt turns over all the hurts I have had in my life. And I hold on to them and they reopen and bruise again and bleed again and must heal again. I don't know. She, she's, you know, and she's such a, a, a happy creature. I mean, I'm anything but. You know, I'm broody and I like to think about hard things and I want to figure out what the meaning of life is and I want to unearth every pain that everyone has had and I want to examine it and get close to it and be burnt by it myself. And I like broody women. I like women who are like, you know, deeply, you know, sorrowful and can talk about sorrow with me. And <laughs> but, I kind of know, love that she, balance though. Yeah. And, and even her journey here has been healing for me, too, because she's been able to jump into what seems like a difficult transition into, like, all of these amazing, oh, this is great. She misses her dog something awful. Every time she cries about that dog, I feel like I'm being such a horrible parent by t- keeping her away from her dog. But she will, you know, one day I said to her, I'm really sorry that you're missing the dog. And I was hugging her and she was weeping and. I was like, you know, it's really hard for me to hear you weep about this dog. I just wonder, like, am I doing a good, am I, am I doing this awful thing to you by having you here in Jamaica? And she goes, well, when I feel like I miss the dog, I just cry. And then I'm, I feel all my feelings and then I cry and I let it all out. And then it'll be a long time before I have another day like that. Oh, my God. That is beautiful. And I think one of the things I've noticed when you're speaking about your daughter is the way you've just sort of shrouded her in magic. Like she sounds like such a wonderful girl. Definitely. She's definitely my fairy. I mean, like my definite, my leprechaun, my fairy, my, you know, and I mean, she's preteen. So talk to me in five years. We might be having an entirely different conversation. And, and then again in 10. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But what, what I was going to say was just that, you know, do you take credit for any of that? Because the way you described it is almost without taking credit for the way in which she's turned out, I guess. The credit I take is that I have not yet broken it. It arrived shiny and full of fairy dust. And I, so far, even the many times I've dropped it, rolled it, stepped on it, neglected it, pulled it apart, all the ways in which I have failed her as a mother, it's not yet disappeared the magic it's still there and and so whatever I'm doing or not doing I'm allowing the magic to be present for as long as I can what Charlie said there stood out to me as well because I think even in that statement you made which was like I don't know if I've been as good for her it's like even the self-awareness to acknowledge that relationship in the way that you have which is so much more equal and like symbiotic than like 
most parent-child relationships. I think that's like, it's just wonderful to hear you talk in that way about her as like this fully formed person when, you know, so often like culturally, especially I think within like the wider diaspora and the continent, it can, there can be a very authoritarian or like more traditional imposing relationship. So I'm sure with, with time, you'll both like grow into like the best parts of each other as well. You know, maybe you'll give her some of your edges for when she needs them and she'll open you up <laughs> to bloom. <laughs> that's the dream. That's the dream. Yeah. Um, that's, that's entirely the dream. But I, I really couldn't have hoped for better than Zuri so far. Um, and um, I see the way that she's loved me and the way the gifts that she's, her presence has given me. I see them as credit towards when she maybe won't be this magical creature and then it'll be my turn to be, you know, magical and to allow her to be hard-edged and difficult. Amazing. And then I guess I wanted to touch on one of the core themes, I think, of your incredible poem, which was, you know, this idea of women and girls in service to men and male desire, which is sanctioned by society and in some ways, yeah, just like in, totally enabled. And I guess I wanted to just get your take because it feels, you know, sad that it can still be so relevant and so pertinent today as it was when you wrote it. And just whether you think these things are shifting, whether you think the discourse has moved on or whether things are still the same. I don't know if things are the same. I mean, they're never the same because we change and because we grow and things change. I think the progress is at best incremental and minimally incremental. I see myself as holding the position in a long chain of activists that stretched well beyond when I was born and will extend way past the time I'm dead. You know, um, the many women whose work continue to save my life, continue to save the parts of me that would drone if I didn't have them to reference, include many women who are no longer with us. The Sojourner Truths, the Audrey Lord, the Pat Parkers, you know, so many of these women writers whose work continue to affirm my own pushback against the patriarchy. I just know that this work will span generations. And so this is just our moment to push the movement further. There was a time when girls couldn't go to school within the context of, you know, the continent of Africa, the Caribbean, the US, I mean, and various places are at different points of progress in any one long arc. I mean, America is way behind on race, way behind on the imperialist question. You know, America is still trying to hold up its own feudal system mm -hmm. in a world that has long since decided that feudalism is no longer a viable way of being for humans to take on. You know, Jamaica is, I think, way behind us on the kind of formalization of women's rights. But women spend so much time being in charge of everything that happens in the home that it's kind of a weird conversation to say that women remain powerless in Jamaica because they do work that in places like America and the UK are done largely by men. They, their bodies are in the service of moving and changing and gardening and 
plowing fields and killing goats and, uh, you know, reaping coffee. And that's why I've invested my whole life in this movement, because I don't expect to come to a time in my lifetime when I'll be like, oh, my God, this is so great. It's over. Or even to say that we have like done most of the work because each generation only shifts the conversation, the dialogue of progress only an inch or two forward. And most of us will never see the fruit of what we struggle for because what we enjoy now was not fought for by people we know or people who are alive. You know, the fact that we sit in schools and that here we have a program completely produced by female-bodied humans is in itself, you know, it wasn't fought for now or five years ago or 10 years ago. That's been a struggle and an argument and a push that's been happening for decades, a long, 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 long time. The fact that I can see, you know, four of us who look like we have hair that comes out of the diaspora in some way and it's kind of left alone to be itself and not manipulated to ape whiteness is in itself magical and beautiful. But, you know, in the 70s was a big moment when they had all these Afros out. But in the 80s, everyone had a perm, you know. So not because you see 150,000 people walking around with an Afro, you're going to say, oh, yes, the hair issue for black women has been solved because, you know, fashion will turn it again. And then we will we will want to get once again return to aping whiteness you know, as a cultural norm, but you and I and all three and four of us have to, and five and six and 10 of us and 500 million of us across the globe have got to continue to push. And so there will come a time when our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren and our great-great-grandchildren will enjoy so many more freedoms than we enjoy now. And it's important to note that there will always be a new group to fight for. Because there's the question of trans women that is, you know, a a kind of like cutting edge conversation around gender that is happening in some circles. And then in other circles, all female bodied humans are categorized as women. And then, you know, some places they have to cover their heads and cover their bodies. And some places they are being, you know, they're free to wear whatever they want. And then they are like assaulted daily. I mean, there's... It's so complicated because being able to wear short skirts doesn't necessarily solve the problem of what happens to female-bodied humans, regardless of what they identify as. You know, on the continent of Africa, like the right to have, you know, sanitary napkins or the right to, you know, safety from being raped or being assaulted. I mean, you know, in South Africa, women can wear all kinds of short skirts but they're being assaulted. You know, in women, in in Jamaica, women can wear men's clothes if they want. They can wear an Afro if they want largely, but they're still being disappeared every five days or so. Every two days, every day you hear of a girl or a woman who's gone missing or a woman who's been strangled by a piece of cord or, you know, I mean, to speak of these things requires an understanding that people are under duress in different ways, in different places. And that the conversation can't be one monolithic conversation, that it has to be suited for where we come from, where we live, which means that you have to have a way that you're talking to local activists, local residents. It can't just be some kind of like global fucking British American conversation that is never taking what's happening to local Malawian women into consideration, what's happening in Kingston versus what's happening in East New York. I mean, it has to be 
a more dynamic it's all relevant right I completely agree yeah and I think the framing of it as a a global issue is one that we still need to work on as like communities who care about these issues there's just one last question that we really have for you because we, we don't want to take up too much of your time even though we are enjoying this so much I think all three of us and Iwan, especially our producer, is, is a massive fan of your writing and your work. So as we said at the beginning, absolutely gassed to have you with us. <laughs> but I was wondering what you think your younger self, that younger self maybe who you write about in your extract or the younger self who wrote the extract in your, in your late 20s, what do you think that she would think about where you are now in your life and, and where, where your journey has taken you? I think young Stacey Ann would be sometimes ashamed of the fear that overwhelms me sometimes because now when I make decisions, I am also, I, I'm, I'm deeply aware of how they can impact my kid. And so I think young Stacey Ann would appreciate the very brave, I'm going to do this no matter what. And she would be impatient with the mother who is saying, is this the right decision for my kid? I'd like to do it, but I'm not sure. I think she would be proud uh, that I have stayed in the fight for so long and that I continue to be in it regardless of how difficult it is, like whether it's you know, financial considerations. I think young Stacey Ann would be very proud that I haven't been hired by anyone yet. I love that. I love that energy. I think she was always worried that she would have to buddy up with an institution in order to stay alive as an activist, as an artist. And I think she would be very proud to know that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm two years away from 50 and still I'm not getting a steady check from anybody, which means that nobody owns my time. I think she would be disappointed to find that I haven't yet figured out the love equation. I think she... It's hard, though. It's hard. <laughs> it is hard. But also wonderful, because having not figured it out, which is perhaps leaning into the philosophy that there should be one great find that you hold on to the, for the rest of your life, I think one of the positive byproducts of having failed at love multiple times is having the opportunity to fall in love again. So I have been gifted with the beauty of, you know, each heartbreak makes room for another opportunity to have someone dwell inside of the cracks of the last heartbreak, to shine light through it for you, to give new energy to the heart that beats in your chest with so much pain for years and years of heartbreaks. I think she would be, because when I was young, I was very much invested in when I find the right one, it's going to be amazing. And now that I'm older, I think I understand that a life is a life is a life. And the life you live is the life you live. And so I've lived a life where I have been loved, affirmed, rejected, left by the most astoundingly beautiful women, smart, amazing I can't say that I have been loved or let go by any woman who was not, in her own right, a magnificent hurricane of joy and some other things. <laughs> but I can't say that I would not have loved almost 
anybody because each of them took me down the most marvelous roads of experience and magic and learning. I think she'd be disappointed that I haven't found the one yet, but the older me is a little bit more forgiving in that I'm beginning to enjoy the fact that every time the magic of one love affair ends, that it makes room for the beginning of yet another. That's such a good note. Yeah, that's a perfect note to end on, I think. Yeah. Stacey Ann, you are magic. I really <laughs> hope that if I'm ever in Jamaica or, New York, or, or um, New York, I was actually supposed to, or New York, yeah. I was actually supposed to go to Jamaica and New York last year before the pandemic happened. So I have like tickets <laughs> like waiting in the bank. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> This has been an II Studios production. Thank you so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget, you can sign up to become a member at gal-dem.com for access to exclusive discounts with our favourite brands and partners, early access to tickets for Galdem events, an advanced copy of our annual print issue, and so much more. Make sure you're following us on all major social media platforms at Galdem Zine for the latest independent journalism or visit our website, which is gal-dem.com. Galdem has a book, I Will Not Be Erased, Our Stories About Growing Up as People of Colour. It's available in all good bookstores or online. If you loved this episode of Growing Up with Galdem, be sure to subscribe, rate and leave a review. We'll catch you on the next episode. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues 
your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.